So uh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you for uh, braving the still treacherous conditions out there today and uh, for joining us today for a uh, hopefully stimulating discussion of the ethics and law of end-of-life care. Uh, this is, to be perfectly clear, uh, an area where libertarians are allowed to disagree. Uh, this is not something like the war on drugs where you kind of know what a libertarian thinks and if you disagree, you're not a libertarian. There are lots and lots of libertarian positions on this issue. Uh, we all might have slightly different ideas about how our end-of-life care ought to proceed. One particular libertarian insight into this area, though, is that given the fact of disagreement, we will often do best to avoid quarreling over it. Uh, libertarians might not agree on what constitutes a dignified death. There are at least two views of this, as, as far as I can tell. Uh, one of them holds that there is nothing particularly dignified about suffering, and that what we are trying to do in attaining a death with dignity is to maintain a measure of control over how we are to go. Another conception of death with dignity is that we ought to let nature take its course and that, in fact, suffering can ennoble death and that there is meaning to be had by it. Uh, this is a big question, and it's not one that I think that public policy is necessarily equipped, maybe, to, uh, to answer. Uh, and that is why already there is significant uh, latitude in our law for making different decisions about end-of-life care. Another thing libertarians can add, I think, to this and many other policy discussions is one, one insight that I think we insist on with particular consistency and particular vehemence, and that is the concern that the law as it is written never tells the whole story. Laws commonly have complicated and unpredictable social effects. Laws often present perverse incentives. The designs that lawmakers might have in mind when they write a law are not necessarily going to be realized in the society that lives under the law. Laws commonly impinge on existing social practices in ways that lawgivers did not and could not have imagined. Changing a law or keeping an old law inevitably requires us to look at these realities. Now, all these concerns, I think, are, are at play very much in today's topic, which is the question of the rights of the dying. In our society, terminally ill people may, uh, if they are mentally competent, first of all, refuse medical treatment. This is a well-established principle of law. This is something that is not terribly controversial. If you are mentally competent, you're permitted to refuse treatment. Second, they may choose aggressive pain management techniques in consultation with a doctor. And these techniques may, in fact, shorten their lives. Uh, this is permitted. The third thing, which we are here to discuss today, which is, in most states, not permitted, uh, is described in, the, uh, uh, described in an essay at uh, Cato Unbound by Professor uh, Harold Ball as follows. The third thing is this. Physician-assisted dying is the final choice. If a doctor assists a dying patient by deliberately providing the knowledge, the means, or both by which the patient will use to end his own life, then the physician is a criminal subject to prosecution, loss of license, and imprisonment. The question we're facing is, is this right? Is this wrong? Incidentally, this is true not just of physicians, 
but of other medical care personnel and indeed of anyone. <clears throat> do we keep this law? Do we change it? And uh, in, this, in this debate, I think uh, libertarians do have some insight to offer in what I said earlier about the complicated social outcomes of law. It is by no means easy to instantiate a law and to predict all of its various outcomes. Uh, we have two speakers here today. Kathleen uh, Glenn Foster, I'm going to introduce first. Uh, she serves as legal counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, where she is a member of their life team, uh, working on uh, issues involving life and death. Uh, she has been there since 2009 and has worked on key legal cases involving abortion, euthanasia, denial of care, healthcare fraud, freedom of conscience, and open records requests. She is currently focusing on government audits of Planned Parenthood and on defending state laws that protect the health and safety of pregnant women and their unborn children. Uh, Foster earned her JD at Georgetown University Law Center, and she is admitted to the bar in Virginia, the Eastern District of Virginia, and the US Courts of Appeals for the First, Fifth, Eighth, and Ninth Circuits. I am assured that she is on her way and will be here momentarily. Uh, fortunately, the person who is slated to speak first is Barbara Mancini. Uh, Barbara Mancini is a registered nurse. She is not a uh, policy wonk by design. Uh, she is here because of her particular life circumstances. Uh, she became an advocate in this area after being charged by the state of Pennsylvania with a felony. That is of attempting, or that is of aiding the attempted suicide of Joseph Yorsha, her 93-year-old terminally ill father. The case was dismissed in February 2014 and she has gone on to uh, speak about it, to do interviews and, and lectures across the country uh, as uh, a citizen advocate. I don't want to steal too much of her thunder, and so I will let her explain in more detail exactly why she is here. Uh, and then hopefully we will hear from uh, Catherine Glenn Foster. Then uh, time permitting, we will take some questions from the audience and uh, head upstairs for lunch. Uh, we have no problem with you using cell phones. Uh, if, you're, if you want to uh, post on Twitter or other social media, that's great. Please, though, make sure that they are in silent operation mode. Thank you. Thank you. As Jason intimated in his introduction, I come to this discussion from a unique perspective, and I will be sharing that story with you today. First, I want to state the obvious. You are going to die. The people you love and care about will die. Everyone dies. It is a universal experience. Unfortunately, in the United States, we have a lot of difficulty discussing the end of life. We live in a culture that is profoundly disturbed by the concept of death. And it's kind of like acknowledging the reality of dying is an admission of defeat. That's one reason why only 26% of Americans have completed end-of-life directives. These are the legal documents that have your end-of-life wishes in writing. If you don't have this, what will happen if you become unable to make your own health care decisions? 
You need to have a healthcare decision maker or proxy who knows your values, preferences, and wishes at the end of life. These discussions are vitally important because we die differently in 2016. A hundred or even 50 years ago, people lived shorter lives. Well, we now have medical treatments and technology that allow people to live well into old age, even those who have significant or life-threatening health problems. So, people die older, they die sicker. For most people, their deaths are prolonged. They are neither quick nor painless. And most people, about 80%, will die in hospitals and nursing homes. As the writer Kent Russell put it, history is irony on the move. Turns out that by so bettering and extending our lives, we have reachieved suffering. Now, despite our reticence to talk about the end of life, there is common agreement among people on how they want their lives to end. People want to die at home in the presence of their loved ones. They want their pain and discomfort managed. They'd like their spiritual needs respected. And most people do not want to become a devastating financial or emotional burden on their loved ones. And that takes us into my story. It has to do with my father, his end of life wishes, the need for better care at the end of life, and who gets to decide how you will die. In February 2013, I was arrested in Pennsylvania and prosecuted on the charge of aiding the attempted suicide of my dying 93-year-old father. Instead of having the peaceful and dignified death that he hoped for, he died after prolonged suffering and being subjected to exactly the medical treatment that he specified in his written advance directives that he never wanted. The circumstances and the politics that allowed this to happen could certainly happen again. And as I tell my story today, you will see that there are multiple forces that will prevent the dying from having their wishes honored and that can place them and their loved ones in jeopardy. My story is a cautionary tale. This is my father, Joe Yorshaw. He was one of 12 children born into a family of Eastern European immigrants. He was a decorated World War II veteran and after the war, he worked hard to establish his own business. He was a contractor, and he did heavy excavation work. He was very talented. He could build anything, and he could fix anything. And my mother likes to say that she never had to call a repair person for any reason until the last year of my father's life. He was fiercely independent, strong-willed, and he had very focused conviction about how he wanted to live. He had a number of medical problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, 
kidney disease, and he'd even had a stroke at one time. And at the age of 92, he made the decision to stop taking the medicines that treated these conditions. Why? They weren't helping the quality of his life, which was getting worse and worse. He discussed his decision with my family and with his doctor, and we all agreed to respect his wishes. Before 2000, February 2013, I was just a regular person. I've been married for 21 years. We now have two daughters in college. I worked as an ER nurse. My parents lived in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. It's a small town about 100 miles north of my home in Philadelphia. I was very involved with my parents. We spoke on the phone every day, and as my father's health worsened, I visited frequently. By the age of 93, my father was terminally ill. He enrolled in home hospice care, and he was having significant pain. As a nurse, I know that pain and other distressing symptoms often worsen as a person nears death. My father asked me to hand him his pain medicine. It was a partly filled one ounce vial of liquid morphine. He always opened that childproof cap and we would measure out the dose. I did the same routine with him that day. But before I could measure out the dose, he quickly took what was left in that vial. I know he was having severe pain. The previous night was the worst he'd ever had. When my mother tried to remove a loose button-down shirt, he cried out that it felt like she was breaking his bones. Whether his intention was to do anything other than relieve his pain, he didn't say. A home hospice nurse arrived about two hours later, and I told her dad took the morphine. He was drowsy, but he was not unconscious. He was breathing normally, he was able to follow commands, and he was able to respond to questions. The hospice nurse and her supervisor insisted that my father be taken to the hospital to be treated for an overdose. Now, my father had written advanced directives that clearly stated he wanted no life-prolonging treatment. I was his legal health care proxy. He had a standing do not resuscitate order, and he was adamant that he never wanted to go to a hospital, and that was documented in his hospice record. I tried in vain to make sure my father's wishes were respected. But the hospice called 911. Police and then paramedics arrived. And by police order, my father was removed from his bed and taken to the hospital for treatment. Ironically, but sadly, when the paramedics asked my father if he was having any pain, for the very first time, his answer was no. I was arrested then and there, right in the house. I was charged with aiding and attempted suicide. This is a second degree felony in Pennsylvania and conviction carries up to 10 years in prison. <coughs> the police captain who arrested me 
told me I no longer had any say in what happened to my father. My mother had gone to the ER to be with my dad, and she was asked by the hospital to give her consent for my father to be treated. The police informed my mother that if my father died, things would go much worse for me. My 84-year-old mother was placed in the agonizing position of having to choose between honoring her promise to my father, whom she loved and was married to for 62 years, or helping me, her daughter. So in order to help me, my mother gave consent for the hospital to treat my father. Two hours after arriving in the ER, more drowsy but still breathing normally, my father was given a medicine to reverse the effects of the morphine. He was livid that he'd been brought to the hospital and he knew I was in trouble. He shouted and pleaded, don't hurt Barbara. Don't let them hurt Barbara. My father suffered tremendously, not only from the unwanted treatment he received in the hospital, but from the anguish of knowing that I was being accused of helping him end his life. He died four days later from pneumonia, not from a morphine overdose. The Pennsylvania Attorney General then began a year-long prosecution of me. I was placed on unpaid leave from my job. The prosecutor had the court put a gag order on me, so I couldn't talk publicly about my case, nor could I refute any of the misinformation that was out there and I incurred over $100,000 in legal fees. Now my case received widespread media coverage. It became national and global news. And the reaction was shock and outrage. There were multiple opinion pieces and editorials written about my case, and not one supported the decision to prosecute, which is very rare in a criminal case. Exactly one year after my father's death, a judge in a scathing 46-page ruling ruled that the case had no merit and the charge was dismissed. Without any apology from either the hospice or the prosecutor, nor any recognition of the ordeal that they'd put us through, we were left to pick up the pieces of our lives. So the question is, how could such an or horrible ordeal happen? There's four parts to the answer. The first was failure of Hospice of Central Pennsylvania. Now, as you may know, Hospice is a model of end-of-life care based on the philosophy that each of us has the right to die pain-free and with dignity, and our families will receive the necessary support to allow us to do so. I fully support good hospice care, 
we had relatives who had used hospice in the past and they had very good experiences. I expected no less from my father, but what he got was something very different. My father was in home hospice care for two weeks with no medicine for pain. I called the hospice and I asked them to prescribe morphine, which is reasonable and appropriate. Morphine is the most commonly used medicine to treat end-of-life pain. Well, the prosecution used that phone call as evidence against me. They stated that it showed I had a nefarious intent to help my father end his life. I didn't know at the time that I made that phone call, but morphine had indeed been prescribed for my father two weeks earlier, and the hospice withheld it. They later stated they did that because my father said he didn't want to take any medicine. Now, I will agree. He did not want to take any medicine if he thought it would prolong his life, but he was self-medicating at home with lots of Tylenol and ibuprofen to treat his end-of-life pain. The hospice used this phrase frequently in their documentation about my father, comfortable despite pain. I think it qualifies as an oxymoron but I will tell you that my family and I vigorously dispute that characterization of how my father felt. In court, my attorney asked the hospice supervisor if my father had the right to have as much medicine as he needed to relieve his pain. And her answer was, that is not a stated right. This same supervisor also testified that my father should not receive any more than a very low dose of morphine, two and a half milligrams, at any given time. This attitude guaranteed that my father would suffer until the very end. And it also contradicts what the United States Supreme Court ruled in the Glucksburg and Quill cases in 1997 the majority opinion in both of these cases said, terminally ill patients have the right to as much medicine as they need to relieve their pain, even if it advances the time of death. This is settled law. I am truly at a loss to see how withholding or limiting pain medicine at the end of life comports with the philosophy of hospice care or honors this decision by the Supreme Court. The second element of this ordeal is the law. The Pennsylvania statute that criminalizes aiding a suicide is vaguely written, as are the statutes in almost every other state. None of them specify what actions rise to the level of assisting or aiding a suicide. And the problem with a vaguely written criminal law is that it is then left open to interpretation. The prosecutor in my case interpreted the law to mean that providing a dying man 
his legally prescribed medicine, which he was permitted by law and by physician order to self-administer, rose to the felony level of aiding a suicide attempt. So that means that caregivers have to fear arrest and imprisonment for advocating for their loved ones. And the dying have to fear having unwanted treatment forced on them just because someone in a position of power decides that their wishes will not be honored, whether they disagree with their choices or whether they feel that it's their right to impose their personal beliefs on other people. In fact, one out of four Americans have experienced unwanted or excessive medical treatment, which equates to more than 25 million Americans. Now certainly, people bear some responsibility if they have not articulated their wishes. But for people like my father, who openly discussed his end-of-life wishes and had them written down in legal documents, to have them overridden is just unconscionable. My father survived the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And the suffering at the end of his life was compounded not only by his undertreated pain and his anguish over my arrest, but also by having unwanted medical treatment forced upon him. So I will tell you some of what his last days were like. In the ER, he was frantic and distraught over my arrest. He pulled out his IV, pulled off his heart monitor, didn't cooperate with anything. He was admitted to the hospital, and as you probably know, that means lots of needle sticks for blood tests and IVs. His hands were restrained. He very quickly developed a high fever. They gave him Tylenol for that, but he also had ice packs placed around his body to cool it down. His kidneys failed. And because his kidneys failed, the potassium level in his blood became dangerously high. He wasn't on kidney dialysis, so the next best treatment for that was to give him a medicine called Kxalate, which lowers the potassium level by causing massive diarrhea. It worked well. The profuse diarrhea then led to the loss of the top layer of his skin, front and back, wherever that diarrhea touched. His skin was open and raw and red. He no longer spoke, but he moaned. His chest x-ray showed pneumonia in both lungs. His failing heart and kidneys could no longer handle the IV fluid he was being given, and he developed such massive fluid in both of his arms that they became unrecognizable. And finally, on the day he died, my father was given morphine to treat his discomfort. The third part of this ordeal is criminal, criminal justice, injustice in the United States. 
This is a Cato Institute audience, so I know that you are probably well aware of how prosecutors use their enormous power to pressure people who've been charged with crimes into plea bargains. This way the prosecutor wins a conviction without the trouble of preparing for a hearing or trial. And about 95% of criminal cases in the United States are settled this way. Most people charged with crimes agree to plea bargains because the consequences of possibly losing at trial are dire. Prosecutors will demand much harsher sentences for people who insist on their constitutional right to trial. So that pressure happened to me too, but I did have my preliminary hearing, and after that I filed a petition for habeas corpus, which is a motion to dismiss. And I have to tell you, it was quite a drama in the courtroom at that hearing when my attorney pulled out the sheet from the hospice record that showed my father had been prescribed a much larger dose of morphine the day he enrolled in hospice, two weeks prior to my ever calling about it. The prosecutor had to admit in open public court that he had never read the hospice record. And he had also to admit that this evidence was completely inconsistent with the testimony of his witnesses. Why would a prosecutor not even read their own evidence? The only explanation I can think of is that he fully expected I would succumb to that pressure to plea bargain, and it just didn't matter to them to verify what those witnesses said. The fourth element of this ordeal was politics. One more person wanted to see this prosecution go forward, and that was the local county coroner, David Moylan. The coroner ruled that my father died of a morphine overdose, and he also ruled that his manner of death was a homicide. A homicide. Now, I knew that my father died of pneumonia, among his other terminal conditions, but I had independent experts, including a forensic toxicologist, look at my father's records for an objective evaluation. And they all agreed he did not die of a morphine overdose. And I'll quote the toxicologist. This was not a lethal level of morphine by any means. Now, why would the coroner say that my father's death was a homicide? A few short weeks after releasing my father's death certificate, Coroner Moylan publicly announced that he was running for United States Congress on a Sanctity of Life platform. The coroner was asked in an interview what made him decide to run for Congress, and this was his answer. It really just boiled down to one primary issue, and it's one I feel strongly about, the sanctity of human life. It's so important to defend human life from conception to natural death. He also had this to say, it's very important that every decision you make as coroner to determine the cause and manner of death, see how does it affect the sanctity of life? 
I've been doing that for the last year and a half. The coroner has every right to his religious beliefs. He's an openly devout Catholic. He has every right to have political ambitions. But once you inject religion and politics into death investigations, the consequences are catastrophic. I am well aware of what the implications were for me if a judge or jury had believed what this coroner said. Even the prosecutor never went so far as to cause, call this a homicide. In fact, wrote in a brief to the judge that they never argued that I was responsible for my father's death. So to recap, these four things, failure of hospice, a vague criminal statute, criminal injustice in the United States, and politics all came together to create this horrific ordeal for my father and me. Do you think this could happen again? Well, here's what the Attorney General of Pennsylvania had to say when the judge dismissed my case. If the citizens of the Commonwealth disagree with an existing statute, it is incumbent upon the people to work with the General Assembly to amend the law. Until such amendment occurs, it is the legal responsibility of prosecutors to enforce the law as it currently exists. And I might add, however they choose to interpret it. I'm gonna share an opinion uh, written by Paul Carpenter. He's a journalist with the Allentown Morning Call. And he wrote a number of columns about my case. He said, if medical people can ignore a do not resuscitate order, a living will, or any other obstacle to the profits of prolonged agony. And if Pennsylvania's top law enforcement officer sides with them by going after a family member who tried to protect a family member's dignity, it's a frightening threat to individual freedom, indeed. During the year that I was under prosecution, I spent my time doing my own research. I researched hospice care and pain management at the end of life. I researched the criminal laws. And I researched the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. 18 years ago, Oregon became the first state in the country to legalize medical aid in dying, which allows a terminally ill person who meets the eligibility requirements to obtain a prescription to bring about a peaceful death. Opponents forcefully argued that allowing this to happen would imperil good end-of-life care by providing an easier alternative. But the opposite happened. Within a year of the passage of this law, end-of-life care in Oregon improved in dramatic and measurable ways. Oregon's at the top of all states for appropriate utilization of hospice care, for the use of medical morphine to treat pain, for the honoring of advanced directives, and more people in Oregon die in their own homes than in any other state in the country. The law has worked so well that it prompted bioethicist Arthur Kaplan to say this 
the Oregon law has benefited many more people than have actually used it. In the 18 years that the Oregon law has been in effect, a full third of the people who obtain a prescription don't even use it. But they are comforted by having that option available should they feel they need it. The safeguards written into the law work. Medical aid in dying allows terminally ill adults the option of having a prescription to alleviate their suffering if it becomes unbearable. And it allows them to have control over their own dying process. There are specific detailed procedural precautions built into the law. But very briefly, to be eligible, a person must be terminally ill, as determined by two independent physicians. They must be mentally competent or capable of making their own decisions, be able to self-administer the prescription, and be at least 18 years old. Support for medical aid in dying continues to grow. Nationwide, 69% of people approve of it. And a clear majority of physicians now support medical aid in dying, 54%. It's legal now in five states, Washington, Oregon, California, Montana, and Vermont. And in 2015, 23 states plus the District of Columbia introduced aid in dying legislation. Unfortunately, Misunderstandings about the law and misinformation from opponents have prevented the law from passing in these other states. I have three takeaways from what I'm saying today. First is that we need to improve end-of-life care, and quality hospice care is vital to that end. Second point is an ordeal like this could certainly happen again. And thirdly, medical aid in dying and the benefits that this option brings should be a choice available in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Stanford University did a study last year in the San Francisco area, and they looked at diverse cultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual groups. And they asked these groups, what kind of care do you want at the end of life? And even in spite of this diversity, there was a common response to that. People want to live as long as they have a good quality of life. But when it is their time, they want to be consulted so that they die in a way that they are respected. So that brings us back to this. Who gets to decide how you will die? You think about it. With the exception of how we die, most people have the ability to control the major decisions that affect our lives. This is an intensely personal issue, and it closely aligns with a lot of the principles of libertarianism. 
such as the principle of personal liberty that says individuals should be free to make choices for themselves and to accept responsibility for the consequences of the choices they make. And the principle of self-ownership. Individuals own their own bodies and they have rights over them that other individuals, groups, and governments may not violate. We live in a pluralistic democracy, and people's options at the end of life should not be limited because of theological doctrine or other people's personal ideologies. The means to alleviate suffering, whether it's through high-quality hospice care, medical aid in dying, or both, should not be limited. My father had a terrible death. And my family and I continue to be haunted by this horrible ordeal that was his end of life. I don't know if my father would have chosen medical aid in dying if that option had been available to him. But I do know that he would have wanted the choice. And he would have wanted whatever he had chosen to be honored and respected. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, we are uh, a little bit behind schedule, but we uh, fortunately do have our second speaker here, uh, Catherine Glenn Foster. And I am going to certainly give you your full 40 minutes, and we'll just cut into the, the lunchtime. You're, you're here for stimulating intellectual discussion, not for sandwiches. So um, take it away. Uh, thank you so much for having me here today. It is such a pleasure to be able to join you all, and particularly in the aftermath of a blizzard. Uh, and I do apologize for the delay in joining you. Uh, parts of 495 are still shut down, including my part. It was totally blocked, so uh, I apologize. Um, thank you also, Barbara, for your very moving uh, and emotional testimony. Uh, I really appreciate your story. And, uh, and I'm glad that you're free and able to be here with us today. Um, Today's panel is about the rights of the dying. And we can all agree that these are vitally important rights. But assisted suicide touches and threatens all of us. Everyone here in this room cherishes our core principles of individual liberty and limited government. And this is precisely why we should unite in opposition to assisted suicide, to government interference in the very tragic and very personal decision to take one's own life. We have seen increasing coverage of assisted suicide in the media recently. Certainly, putting a face on the issue can make a big difference for both sides. So let's start by taking a look at a couple of recent stories. Brittany Maynard is a recent example. She received a grim diagnosis, the brain cancer glioblastoma. She decided it was time to go, but she decided to enlist the help of a doctor. So she moved to Oregon, a state with assisted suicide, got her prescription, and spent much of her remaining days campaigning for its legalization. Stepping back a couple of months, actor Robin Williams, our genie, our captain, my captain, our good morning Vietnam, 
He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia. He was also in the midst of a long-term struggle with depression. As we know, he committed suicide, and we collectively mourned his untimely tragic death, and also specifically his suicide. As studies have shown, losing someone to suicide has a special impact. And then we have stories of those who choose to go on, even with terminal disease. Lauren Hill, J.J. Hansen, the list goes on. But as impactful as all of these stories are, as all of this anecdotal evidence may seem, that's not what this debate is about. It's about autonomy. It's about limited government. And it's about our core freedoms. We live in a civil society, one in which individuals can make choices about their lives. This is true even when it comes to the choice about one's end of life, the choice to end one's life. And so while historically many states have had laws criminalizing suicide or even attempted suicide, while these laws were sparsely enforced, now not a single state retains such a law on the books. Nonetheless, we have public policies against suicide, and we've implemented laws, regulations, guidance, and resources that have helped to keep the suicide rate relatively low, if never quite low enough. This is because we have recognized the significant medical and non-medical costs of suicide and its physical, emotional, and psychological damage to patients, families, and friends. Suicide doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is true even when the victim is facing a terminal illness like Robin Williams. His son has spoken out about the pain and heartbreak he has experienced by losing his dad. And this is true even when the patient is looking down a long, dark tunnel of depression. But somehow, if you take away the gun and replace it with a prescription for what is in essence poison, some people start to feel differently. Even if the diagnosis is the same, even if the prognosis is the same. My dear Irish colleague, Kevin Fitzpatrick, who uh, is a paraplegic and recently passed away from the ravages of cancer, told an illustrative story. When non-disabled people say they despair of their future, suicide prevention is the default service we must provide. Disabled people, by contrast, feel the seductive, easy arm of the few supposedly trusted medical professionals around their shoulder, someone who says, well, you've done enough. No one could blame you. So today I'll just give a brief overview. The current state of the law and the legislation and court cases that got us to this point. The problems with assisted suicide and a look at the way ahead. So the current law of assisted suicide, just how did we get here? Physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia have long been rejected worldwide. There are just a few exceptions. Switzerland was the first to legalize assisted suicide in 1940 and is the destination for what is sometimes called suicide tourism. The next major changes in the law came in the, in the mid-1990s, when Australia briefly legalized assisted suicide in the Northern Territory and quickly became the first and only place to repeal it. And Columbia courts in that same time frame ruled that euthanasia on request was legal, but passed no law on the matter. We'll come back to Columbia. Then through the 2000s, another big push. Euthanasia and assisted suicide were heard in the courts in cases like Scardoni. Benelux fell. The Netherlands legalized uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia in 2002. Belgium, euthanasia in 2003. And Luxembourg, euthanasia and assisted suicide in 2008. But euthanasia and or assisted suicide are still only legal in those four of 50 European countries. 
And we'll be hearing some of the stories coming out of those countries. For example, using organs from assisted suicide victims and euthanasia victims is now established procedure in, in Belgium. Cremation urns containing human remains have been found dumped in Lake Zurich near Dignitas. Assisted suicide proponents have continued uh, the push into this decade in the courts and in the legislatures. They've seen some success. Last June, Quebec legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide. Then things continued. Canada's criminal code has a provision, 241B, that states that everyone who aids or abets a person to commit suicide, whether suicide ensues or not, is guilty of an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment. This provision was upheld in 1993 in the Rodriguez case, but a year ago last month, in the Carter case, the Supreme Court of Canada struck it down and legalized assisted suicide in Canada. The court gave the legislature just 12 months to draft legislation regulating prescribed death. There were five potential outcomes. Start drafting legislation, ask for an extension, copy another country's law, do nothing, or use the notwithstanding clause to allow the government to override the Charter of Rights and nullify the Supreme Court's ruling. That's a quite extreme measure, but it is one of those potentials. And just a few days ago, the government did ask for an extension and was granted four months. So the book is not closed quite yet. Other cases. Last April, or uh, uh, other losses, last April, Colombia's health ministry completed making available euthanasia, uh, and it made it legally binding by issuing a new protocol. Remember, it had had that case back in the 1990s. Now that process is complete. Also in April in South Africa, the high court in Pretoria granted one terminally ill lawyer the right to assisted suicide, but that was fact-specific and not precedential for others. But by no means... Uh, is assisted suicide law at a dead end. Notice that we speak of only a few select nations of privilege. And even here, we have seen relatively modest success uh, in terms of the, uh, the encroach of assisted suicide. Just a few of the victories. In the Bentley case in British Columbia, one family tried to remove a woman's oral nutrition and hydration. That is to say, she was being offered food and drink, was eating and drinking normally through her mouth, and the family, according to the court, was trying to stop that. The trial court gave a strong defense of the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings, saying, the petitioner's characterization of Mrs. Bentley as vegetative is neither useful nor accurate. It is of fundamental importance to respect and care for the person that Mrs. Bentley is now, rather than merely contrast her current and former abilities. Spoon feeding, they said, is an act of care, promoting the person's dignity and protecting him or her from neglect, which is in fulfillment of his or her rights. And in a big win, the appellate court ag agreed. Also last year in Minnesota, Final Exit Network was convicted of assisted suicide for giving a woman who was not terminally ill uh, exit guides to talk her through suicide and hiding the death tools afterwards. Her husband, who came home and found her, had no idea and thought that she died of natural causes until an investigation in another state uh, uncovered the dirty secret. As Shakespeare said, the truth will out. Yet after the verdict, Final Exit Network still said that they will not change a thing. And we see the wins when we consider how few places euthanasia and prescribed suicide are actually legal. Among the places it has failed, Australia, France, New Zealand, Scotland, and the European Court of Human Rights, including recently in Gross v. Switzerland, in which ADF presented legal arguments, to name a few. 
Here in the United States, the Supreme Court has found that for over 700 years, the Anglo-American common law tradition has punished or otherwise disapproved of both suicide and prescribed suicide. The U.S. Constitution does not provide any right to assisted suicide, and there is no federal law on the subject. The two seminal court cases, as discussed earlier, on assisted suicide came down on the same day in 1997, Glucksburg and Quill. Glucksburg challenged Washington's ban on assisted suicide by saying that there's a fundamental right to it. And the Supreme Court sided with the state, saying assisted suicide is not a fundamental liberty interest. The court said the ban furthered such compelling state interests as the preservation of human life and protection from medical malpractice, coercion, financial pressure, and psychological complications. And further, that if it declared assisted suicide a constitutionally protected right, we would start down the path to voluntary and perhaps involuntary euthanasia. Quill challenged New York's ban on assisted suicide by saying that it was unfair that a patient could refuse treatment but not get a doctor to give him poison, which it called the same thing. These are fundamentally different things. And so we had a good district court ruling that New York had a rational, legitimate interest in preserving life and protecting vulnerable persons, and that this was a matter for the legislature or for a binding referendum. And the Supreme Court unanimously found the ban constitutional. The court held that you can't just decide for yourself which rights are fundamental. And the court said that there's a difference between killing and letting die. So together, these two cases decided that states may exercise their compelling state interest in protecting vulnerable human life through their civil and criminal laws. For hundreds of years, this was expected and universal. As the Supreme Court said in 1997, even as the states move to protect and promote patients' dignity at the end of life, they remain opposed to doctor-prescribed suicide. The vast majority of U.S. states do have a specific statute in place prohibiting assisting in someone's suicide, and this is true even in Oregon and Washington. They simply decided to make exceptions for one particular type of medical professional. And the courts have almost universally supported these prohibitions. In Connecticut, the Blick case challenged Connecticut's ban on assisted suicide, but failed. The court listed numerous compelling policies that motivated its decision, such as threat to the elderly, utilitarian focus and calculation of the value of human life, integrity of the medical profession and the doctor-patient relationship, and the potential slippery slope. The court was impressed with the legislature's numerous hearings, and the court strongly affirmed <clears throat> that assisted suicide is not a court decision. The Florida Supreme Court has likewise declined to overextend its power and refused to throw out Florida's ban on assisted suicide. <clears throat> so now assisted suicide has been legalized in four states, Oregon, Washington, Vermont, and California. Uh, there has been debate about Montana and New Mexico in the past. Uh, so to clarify, in 2009 in Baxter, the Montana Supreme Court ruled merely to allow a possible consent defense to murder charges. So it's not legalized, it's a defense. Competing bills regarding assisted suicide have repeatedly been offered and put forward, uh, but none have yet been enacted. And then in New Mexico, in Morris v. King, a judge legalized assisted suicide in only one county, despite, again, state law making it a felony to assist in a suicide. On appeal, in a decision that set state precedent, the appellate court rejected the trial court's reasoning and overturned that decision. That case is now before the New Mexico Supreme Court. I filed an amicus friend of the court brief in that case at both the appellate and the Supreme Court levels. 
<clears throat> it's important to remember, though, that with few exceptions, assisted suicide is not winning in either the legislatures or the courts. Of course, not all bills have passed, nor all voter referendums, but the numbers are pretty staggering. Assisted suicide failed five times in California before it was pushed through. Even in Washington, prescribed suicide opponents had to try over and over before it passed. New Hampshire overwhelmingly rejected an assisted suicide bill in 2014 with a vote of 219 to 66. Assisted suicide is not an idea whose time has come. It's a threat that has failed more than 140 times in more than half the states already. And from those 20 years of effort since Oregon, only Washington, Vermont, and California have been willing to risk it. And that trend is continuing this year, despite the number of bills introduced. So why is that? Assisted suicide, simply put, is bad public policy. Many polls have found concerns about pressure to die, the risk of inaccurate diagnoses, a reduction in end-of-life options, the expansion of prescribed suicide, sloppy procedures on the part of doctors. People are worried that the focus will be on saving money, not on saving lives. But when you look at why people have actually committed assisted suicide, studies have shown that for most, it's not pain, nor fear of pain. Bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel summarizes that the reason is typically depression, hopelessness, and fear of loss of autonomy and control. In this light, he says, assisted suicide looks less like a good death in the face of unremitting pain, and more like plain old suicide. In Oregon, one study specifically states that depression as a factor for requesting assisted suicide is overlooked. The National Alliance on Mental Illness states that depression affects one's thoughts, feelings, behavior, mood, and physical health. Amidst this vulnerability, patients are entrusted with a decision of whether they wish to die. Yet the bills we've seen have no psychological screening requirements, only a circular requirement to refer for counseling if the attending physician believes the patient needs counseling. It doesn't happen often enough. Non-psychiatric physicians do not even believe themselves capable of adequately evaluating the need for counseling. In one study, 94% indicated that they could not determine whether a psychiatric disorder was impairing the judgment of a patient who requested assisted suicide in their session together. Even when doctors know a patient's judgment is compromised or impaired, however, they can't always save him. In one well-publicized case, a physician thought that his patient was depressed and unfit for assisted suicide, but against his judgment, the patient doctor shopped, got their prescription, and killed himself. When a patient is suffering from depression, removal of lethal means is central to treating the patient. But the very object of physician-assisted suicide is to hand over the gun. And decisions to commit assisted suicide may often be influenced by misdiagnosis. Around 15% of all diagnoses are incorrect, and when we're talking about disorders of consciousness, that number rises to 40% or more. That rate has not changed, despite medical advances over the last 15 years. <coughs> Two, prognoses are often wrong. At least 17% of patients in one recent study, and real-world stories support the claims made by experts in the field. Finally, many individuals face economic duress from insurance, facilities, and even family members, and social duress due to loneliness and feeling like a burden. Then, when someone actually goes to commit assisted suicide, he has to choke down one of two bitter kinds of barbiturates, drugs that take usually 3 to 48 hours to kill. 
Vomiting is common. Some patients have regained consciousness after taking the drugs, and one in five patients don't die from the drugs at all. Put simply, death by assisted suicide, even assisted by a doctor, can be excruciating and humiliating. We discussed public policy and efforts against suicide. There's also a phenomenon known as suicide contagion, or the Werther effect. Studies have shown that media coverage of suicide inspires more suicides. The latest such study, published on the same day that Governor Jerry Brown signed the California bill, demonstrates that legalizing assisted suicide in other states has led to a rise in overall suicide rates, assisted and unassisted, in those states. The study's key findings show that after controlling for demographic and socioeconomic factors and other state-specific issues, physician-assisted suicide is associated with a 6.3% increase in total suicide rates. These effects are greater for individuals older than 65, for whom the associated increase was 14.5%. The results should not surprise anyone familiar with the literature in this area and the social contagion effects of suicidal behavior. You don't discourage suicide by assisting suicide. Journalism students, likewise, are taught the harmful effects of suicide reporting, and strict guidelines have been published by the U.S. Centers for, De for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, and the U.S. Surgeon General. Celebrity suicides inspire more suicides. Some people have even killed themselves at celebrity funerals. After Saddam Hussein was hanged, the rate of hanging young men in Iraq rose. And there's a link between assisted suicide and regular suicide. Places that have legalized assisted suicide have seen an, an enormous increase in deaths by non-doctor suicide. In Oregon, the suicide rate has skyrocketed. As we fight to battle suicide together, that's a backslide we simply cannot afford. As a side note, there is, however, a converse effect, whereby reporting on people with suicidal ideation who do not then go on to suicide inspires others to follow suit. Now, jurisdictions with legalized assisted suicide and euthanasia also show higher rates of elder abuse. Assisted suicide creates broader opportunities for elder exploitation and the abuse of individuals with disabilities. And finally, when it comes to assisted suicide, the slippery slope concerns are real. We've seen that voluntary leads to involuntary leads to really involuntary. In Belgium, half the people are being euthanized without any explicit request. Terminality six months leads to terminality 12 months or two years, leads to disease, leads to malaise. This can easily turn political, when we cede our rights to the government and allow them to license professionals who are given the power to decide which lives are worth living, which people are eligible for death. Indeed, to draw an arbitrary six-month framework around the right to assisted suicide would be illogical, arbitrary, even discriminatory. And so in Belgium, a doctor was recently referred to justice over the euthanasia death of a healthy older woman who was simply grieving the death of her favorite daughter. The doctor was referred to the law not because the woman was ill, not because there were alternatives available, and there were, but because he did not do the euthanasia, and I quote, carefully. In other words, he did not consult with a second doctor. We always have the ability to kill ourselves, but assisted suicide is about ceding rights, not gaining them. Dr. Peter Saunders has observed that, in practice, the boundaries are continually migrating and the nation's moral conscience is shifting year on year. Call it incremental extension, mission creep, or slippery slope, whatever, it is strongly in evidence in Belgium. 
There have been errors, mistakes in diagnosis, uncertainties. There's no accountability with unreported deaths. And increasingly, proponents don't even conceal the endgame. We have already seen voluntarily stopping eating and drinking by someone who was essentially healthy. Pro-VSED activist doctors have called the process horrific, and one patient's daughter termed it torture. But rather than contemplate appropriate medical care, some have suggested a better way. Assisted suicide and euthanasia, saying you wouldn't put a dog through this, you would give it a lethal injection. Assisted suicide also causes a broad desensitization and insensitivity for the plight of the infirm. I've seen that in many of my denial of care cases. I'll share just one with you, a case that's very important for the issues of euthanasia and denial of care here in America. Wisconsin limits when a surrogate may refuse medically indicated treatment. Yet University of Wisconsin doctors withheld treatment of disabled individuals anyway. After only one meeting, with no physical exam of patient one who was a 13-year-old boy with developmental disabilities, no observation of his daily life, no consultation with his long-term care team, a doctor agreed to limit his care in the future, given his, quote, poor prognosis and poor quality of life. Defendant physicians took him under their care, cut off his antibiotics for pneumonia, his nutrition, his hydration, and sent him to hospice where he died. Similarly, after accepting responsibility for patient two, a 79-year-old woman, also with developmental disabilities, a doctor pressured her family to limit treatment, to limit nutrition, to limit hydration, and send her to the hospice, even in the face of patient two's improvement and her family's resistance. Now, she lived thanks to her body's resilience and her family's protests. Disability Rights Wisconsin filed a lawsuit against the University of Wisconsin, and I filed an amicus brief arguing that the University of Wisconsin and its doctors as state actors violated the patient's fundamental right to life. You know, physicians, too, are concerned about assisted suicide as a threat to their profession and to their conscience. Assisted suicide laws and bills contain at best only very limited conscience protections for doctors to avoid coercive or mandatory participation in death. And these are, of course, the same healing professionals who have first sworn to do no harm. In fact, most versions of the Hippocratic Oath have physicians swear, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. Prescribing fatal medication with the express intent to kill flies in the face of that duty. Doctors don't want to play God. They don't want the power to decide who lives and who dies. It's not what they signed up for. And the very integrity of the profession depends upon its ability to utilize the best practices with the best information to promote promote patient well-being. The U.S. Supreme Court has stated that the government undoubtedly has an interest in protecting the integrity and ethics of the medical profession. And so, as expressed by Justice Scalia, virtually every relevant source of authoritative meaning confirms that the phrase legitimate medical purpose does not include intentionally assisting suicide. Medicine refers to the science and art dealing with the prevention, cure, or alleviation of disease. And he goes on, the AMA has determined that physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as healer. The physician cannot both heal and take life. This is even true in Switzerland. One study found that although most of the doctors polled approved of assisted suicide, most were unwilling to actually do it. Only 111 in 1,318 had, even though, as is typical, 
The Swiss doctor is not expected to be present in the room at the actual time of death, that grim task being done by assisted suicide groups. And pharmacists would be wise to be concerned as well, as illustrated by the ADF Stormans case. Pharmacies, as you may know, stock only a small percentage of the available drugs on the market at any given time. This makes sense, given the huge variety of drugs available and their short shelf life in many cases. Yet the Sturman's case is all about the government intruding into pharmacy stock rooms, telling them which drugs they must order in stock when the patient could just walk down to the next pharmacy and get that same drug in a pharmacy that does have it in stock. You could call it almost the affirmative action of the pharmacy world. So as relates to assisted suicide, if a pharmacy manager decides, whether because of demand or hassle or belief, not to stock these assisted suicide drugs, he could bring down the wrath of the nanny state. And of course, the protections in place where assisted suicide has been legalized are wholly inadequate. Let's just take a quick look at the inadequacies in California's assisted suicide law, which is typical in the U.S. Now, California was more careful than most states to make sure that they had strong protect, uh, protections against insurance pressure, but just look at what's left. Competence is no longer required at time of administration of the lethal drugs, only at the time of prescription. No witnesses are required at the time of the actual ingestion, so there is no assurance that the act was voluntary or even self-administered. Likewise, the attending physician is not required to attend the death. In those few states and countries that have experimented with assisted suicide, the attending physician is almost never there. The definition of the term self-administered is left vague and subjective, and there is no requirement anywhere that the patient actually self-administer the lethal drugs to him or herself with no assistance. Under this definition, self-administration could include a third party inserting the drug into the patient's mouth or pouring a liquid drug into the feeding tube. Mere conscious ingestion could qualify as self-administration. Even a patient who began the process by legitimate self-administration may become incapacitated during the process of administration and have someone else step in to finish the job. The lethal drugs may be dispensed to an agent, not only to the patient or his physician. There are almost no required qualifications for the witnesses uh, to, to, to the request to commit the prescribed suicide, and they could be almost anyone, an heir and his cousin, an heir and his best friend. Counseling is circularly required only if the attending or consulting physician thinks it is, despite evidence on the, uh, on the difficulties of diagnosing mental illness. The sole purpose of the evaluation is to determine competence, not to counsel, not to treat. And this is despite strong data indicating a correlation between mental illness and suicide. Competence also need not be determined by an MD. There is no oversight of the lethal drugs once they are administered, and no adequate mechanism for accounting of the disposal of unused drugs. Yes, they are supposed to be brought back to a pharmacy, but the follow-up has been quite lax. And right away, coroners in California expressed concern about the death certificate problem inherent in all assisted suicide bills. One of the very purposes of assisted suicide is to have the death listed as something other than suicide. Otherwise, the client would merely need to get the same drugs or something similar on his own. But in California now, a suicide with a doctor involved can't be termed as suicide. And so the president of the California State Coroners Association has expressed concerns about how to classify such a death. After the bill passed, he asked what we should do if a guy takes life-ending drugs and then goes to sit in a park to die, and we find him there. 
He pointed out the coroner may have no way of knowing the death was sanctioned by law, and that in some cases that aren't clear, coroners will have to decide whether to conduct an autopsy. He said that coroners will need further guidance from the State Department of Public Health, which was put in charge of collecting documentation from, from terminally ill patients. And if the death certificate lists the terminal illness rather than assisted suicide as the cause of death, it could prevent prosecutions for murder and other crimes and affect civil suits in cases where that would be applicable. And really, no safeguard is enough. Paul Russell has written, I have never come across a safeguard that could guarantee safety for vulnerable people. He would say that, some might reply. But think for a moment, unless we describe in the law every possible illness and every possible remedy, Russell goes on, what possibility is there that we can ensure safety? The variables are infinite. What the supposed safeguards do well is protect doctors. They are provided with an immunity for prosecution, for homicide or assisting in suicide if they comply with a set of procedures. That is the California bill, and it's not alone. Put simply, countries have been unable to maintain safeguards. One study found that in the Flemish part of Belgium, one-third of euthanasia cases occurred without consent. In Belgium, nearly half of all cases of euthanasia are not reported. Big surprise, legal requirements were more frequently not met in unreported cases than in reported ones, and a written request for euthanasia was absent in 88%. This is not autonomy. This is not choice. It's government-authorized agents cherry-picking who is worthy. Yet the push continues for state intervention in the form of assisted suicide. If the proposal we're talking about is so dangerous that it requires such substantial state oversight, it's time to, it's time to take another look at the proposal. <clears throat> now, last year's media coverage led some advocates to declare premature victory, describing prescribed suicide as having, quote, reached a threshold where it is unstoppable. Well, just in America, of the 28 states and D.C. that considered assisted suicide last session, few got any traction. Only California passed it, and only in the 12th hour. In fact, in Connecticut, the bill failed to get a single committee vote three years in a row, despite spending over $500,000. Each year, it's actually gone backwards, leading Compassion and Choice's Tim Appleton to publicly admit that if the bill had been voted on, it would have set the movement back by years. But why did California fall? Remember that the two arguments for assisted suicide are anecdotes and autonomy. We already discussed anecdotes, but there's no denying the emotional pull of a well-told story. And Brittany Maynard lived there in California before she moved to Oregon. But on autonomy, the term death with dignity sets up a false choice between a dignified death, assisted suicide, and an undignified one. So assisted suicide appears to be the answer the fulfillment of autonomy, self-determination, and dignity. The problem is that it's, it's clear that very few actually have autonomy or a real choice. Recall that it was in Australia that assisted suicide was first temporarily legalized. Uh, Paul Russell, again, my Australian colleague, recently wrote on the so-called autonomy of assisted suicide, saying, what if it were not really our choice at all? It's not. We can ask for many things from our doctor. We can make legitimate choices where possible between treatments and even the choice to refuse treatments. But if we ask to be made dead, we're really asking our doctor to make a choice to kill us or to help us kill ourselves. In reality, it is his or her choice, not ours, and it comes with consequences. That choice involves a value judgment. It requires the doctor, consciously or otherwise, to be in agreement with you or me that our lives are no longer worth living 
that whatever it is that ails us, our worth as a human person is diminished to the point that dead is better than living. We set dangerous precedents when we allow one person to discriminate against another on the basis of a perception of life or the relative value of a life. None of us need to look too far in history and even in our current world, the effects of such discrimination writ large. And so bills have been introduced in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and more. In the United States, 30 were debated last session. Yet since Quebec, only California has legalized assisted suicide. A few bills have been introduced for this, uh, through a bill. A few bills have been introduced this session, but in New Jersey, the assisted suicide bill died without a vote. Now, most of these bills have been based on the Oregon model, but slippery slope, last year Oregon decided that six months wasn't good enough, and it introduced a bill to extend the six-month prognosis to 12 months. In contrast, lawmakers in Washington, uh, in Washington State, introduced a Right to Know Act, mandating that doctors offer treatment and not just death. Last session, we also saw bills to clarify the law in places that did not proactively ban it in the 1990s or before in the wake of the Kevorkian scandal, and that would prevent doctors from unilaterally removing food and or water from a patient without telling his family. They were talking about unconscious patients here, people who are not choosing. We have likewise seen victory in the courts. In the last year, in California, New Mexico, New York, Tennessee, and New Zealand, courts have rejected any right to expand government intrusion into the suicide deci decision to us all. We had a recent victory in Maine, when a case settled that would, uh, that would have inserted a do-not-resuscitate order into a baby's medical file against her mother's wishes, with the government's stamp of approval. The Belgian criminal courts and the European Court of Human Rights are also considering the petition of Tom Mortier, who learned his mother had died by assisted suicide when he got a call from the morgue. And around the world, there are strong voices in opposition, two of the strongest being the German Ethics Council, the Wales legislature. But in the end, whatever the circumstances and catchphrases employed, doctor-prescribed suicide is not about choice or dignity. It is definitionally government-endorsed suicide guided by a trusted medical professional. We are not talking about imposing morality on the populace, to each their own. But we don't want people to jump off bridges, and we don't establish a commission to help push them. Assisted suicide is dangerous to all involved, is dangerous with the drugs left behind, is dangerous to you and me. As one disability rights advocate has written, there is widespread opposition from virtually every disability rights group in the nation. Assisted suicide doesn't exist in a vacuum. We have the ability to die, but not the right to get the government involved, intruding on a very individual, very lone decision, telling us whether or not we're allowed to make it. But there is still hope for patients, and there is hope for us. Assisted suicide would fly in the face of all the progress that has been made for those who would be hurt the most. So we're looking for an outcome that preserves individual liberty and avoids government intrusion in our lives. We're looking for an outcome, simply put, that we can live with. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we do have some time for questions. Um, we have some Pre-question announcements. Uh, first of all, please wait to be called on. Uh, second, please wait to have a microphone. This is so everyone else in the room can hear you and so that everyone listening online can also hear you. Uh, please announce your name and affiliation before you begin. 
And please make it a question, not a speech. Uh, with that said, uh, we'll be uh, calling on individuals to ask questions if there should be any. Yes. Hi, Noah from some Medill News Service. Uh, Ms. Mancini uh, presented a Gallup poll um, that uh, said, uh, I believe it was 69%. I checked, um, I checked some of the figures, and um, it was over 50. Uh, there were some questions about that. But um, my question is for Ms. Glenn Foster. How do, you react, how, how do you react to the poll saying that over 50% of, Ameri of Americans uh, believe that physician-assisted suicide is acceptable if the terminally ill patient requests it. Um, is this on? I, I believe so. Yes. Push. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Great. Um, you know there are a number of different polls out there, and um, and the thing with uh, with polls, there's that line about uh, about lying with statistics, and statistics don't lie, but you know you you can modify them to fit. To fit your purposes, and the thing with with the different polls is each of them have asked different questions. Some of the the polls have said, should patients have the ability to access this? Some of uh, there are just different phrases. Um, I, I don't recall what the exact question was in that poll. I don't know if you have it up in front of you, but um, but I've seen polls that have the number much closer to fifty and and even below, depending on the exact phrasing of the question. Right here. I would actually like uh, um, Ms. Mancini to uh, respond to the uh, argument made by um, Ms. Foster. Which ones? Uh, well, um, we could start with. Uh, I mean, she said a lot. So, which one specifically are you referring to? That that. Uh, um, well, that you know, one of her her assertions is that that uh, assisted suicide empowers the state against people's wishes, um, which seems to go count completely counter to the main point that you were making. Um, I, another is that uh, um, there's no way to regulate, you know, to uh, uh, assure that that people aren't uh, dying just because they're depressed. Um, another is is there's no way to regulate that. Uh, there won't be abuses of people's organs after they die. Um, uh, we're not going to have time for a, a full debate here. I mean, it would it would be actually be very interesting to continue. But this is uh, can we can we narrow down like a little bit because the, I, we're not we're not formatted that, for this. The, the points that bothered you the most. Well, what I would say here is I, I don't agree with what she said that the protections written into the law are are not uh, effective. I think they are very effective. Uh, certainly, a lot of people who try to get the prescription don't qualify. So uh, they are weeded out. The fact that a psychiatrist isn't involved from the beginning doesn't mean that the safeguards don't work. They do work. Vulnerable, vulnerable populations have not been targeted by this law. And if you look at the statistics from the Oregon uh, Department of Health website, the majority of people who are using this are people who are educated who have insurance, they are under hospice care, and it is true that they want to exercise their autonomy over their dying process, and uh, I see that as a good thing. Um, I can't remember the other question you asked me, but. 
I don't know if that uh, answers. Yes, in the back in the yellow shirt. Hi, uh, Ms. Mancini, thank you for coming and sharing your story. Um, it, it, and if I got the, the, the explanation correct, if, if the hospice care people, the doctors, the palliative care people have done, had done their job properly, uh, how do you think it would have affected uh, your father's feeling and your feeling? Um, I know this is a bit of a hypothetical, but it seems that they they made some mistakes here, terrible mistakes. And how do you think that Hospice might have changed? Hospice care failed, and I don't think that this ever would have happened if, if he had proper treatment of his pain. How would I feel about this issue if that had never happened? I don't think I can answer that. Um, you know, it, it was a life-changing event, and it's something that my family and I are continue to be haunted by it's it's very painful so I, I can't answer that hypothetical uh, yes this might not be fair but miss Glenn Foster have you ever actually had to deal with this with a family member of someone you loved or someone that you loved loved one do, um, you, do you know what we're all talking about from I, a personal not I, just I, statistics. I do. Yeah, my grandmother. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, if you don't have to feel that you right, you don't have you, to you don't feel you not, have to share no. details. You but, don't. And have the to. other thing is that the the reason I ask that question is because your whole premise seemed to be that you didn't want the government to have power over the individual. Well, in my opinion, the government has power over all of us right now to the de the to the degree that we are not allowed, mm -hmm. no matter. And and it horrified me that 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 her father had a DNR and et cetera, and nobody would pay attention to it. I mean, we all try to. Play I agree. I I certainly agree. Uh, there are many parts of her story that that are horrifying. Um, that uh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, that's the end of my question. I mean, just yeah. A lot of what we're trying to do here is to determine, from what I think are a, a broadly shared set of values, how best to instantiate them, and that's that's going to be a difficult question. It's going to be a difficult question. Um, one more down here. Hi, um, this is for Miss Glenn Foster. If I understand, actually, um, um, Miss Mancini can comment on it as well. If I understood one of your arguments, it was that. Um, that this was a law that wasn't in effect um, in a lot of places, and that there had been difficulty getting traction for it. So, um, so you know, therefore, the time wasn't right for this. And I'm just curious if you look at history, if there might be other examples of, of laws that were in effect, yeah, women's rights, civil liberties, um, and whether you would make the same conclusion with those. Uh, I'm not saying that, that the time isn't right. I'm saying that the declaration of victory is premature. And I think there's, there's a distinction there. Uh, right here, yes. Hi, I have a question for uh, Ms. Glenn Foster. I was wondering if there are any policy changes you would suggest that could prevent the kind of thing that happened to Ms. Mancini uh, that don't involve just legalizing assisted suicide. Absolutely. Um, there are a number of things that I have advocated for. Uh, for example, in the case of, uh, of DNRs, making those um, 
uh, more visible for patients who do decide to, uh, who do elect to um, to sign a DNR, things of that nature. Um, absolutely, substantially more training and oversight of uh, of hospice, and uh, and just ensuring that they fulfill their duties, that they are up to date on the latest um, pain techniques, uh, etc. Um, I mean, it, most of her story was. Um, what we said it before, horrifying. So, yeah. All right, one more question. This will be the last. And uh, following this question, we will proceed upstairs to the second floor for lunch. So, yeah. I'm curious um, why you equate euthanasia with aid in dying, because one, aid in dying requires the patient to make the decision and can always change their decision, whereas euthanasia the patient doesn't administer the drug. And especially given the fact that euthanasia is the European model mm -hmm. and it's nowhere a model in the United States, it's illegal everywhere in the United States. Uh, precisely, and, and I, I don't disagree that those are two very different things, uh, which is why, for example, when I was speaking of Europe and the laws that have been enacted there, uh, I was careful to say which uh, had enacted euthanasia and which um, physician-assisted suicide or aid in dying. All right. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. I have. I just wanted to say one more thing about lunch. One thing that tends to happen at the end of policy forums is that people come down here and mob the speakers with additional questions, depriving them of lunch. Uh, in the interest of fairness, let's all proceed up to lunch, and uh, perhaps there will be time for discussion up there. Thank you very much for coming, and let's thank our speakers.